Thank you for joining us for a message from the Christian Fellowship Church of Kandu, North Dakota. Please visit our website for more information about our church at kanducfc.com. All right. So, yeah, like, we're, we're, like I said in, the, in prayer here, we're going to kind of go through the second half of John chapter 7. We started it last week, and in this chapter we saw that, that Jesus came to Jerusalem for the Festival of Shelters, but he kind of did it incognito, right? He didn't want to come with a whole lot of hoopla. He didn't want to be noticed. He wanted to slide in under the radar because it was a hostile place, right? So when he got there, he, he initially kept pretty quiet, kept to himself, but midway through this festival, he actually got up at the temple of all places, the center of attention, and he began to teach there. Jesus spoke about motives and how important they are during that message that we talked about. And if we want to do God's will, we're going to recognize that God's teaching comes from Jesus. Many people, many people were debating about who Jesus was. There was a lot of confusion about him and, and a lot of people with strong opinions. The Jewish leaders, for instance, they wanted to kill Jesus. And, and there were other people who thought, ah, maybe there's something about this guy that we should be opening our lives up to. So we're going to pick up our story here in John 7, verse 37. And uh, we'll, we'll check about these things as we go. On the last day... The climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, Anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink, for the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. When he said said living water, he was speaking of the Spirit, who would be given to everyone believing in him. But the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus had not yet entered into his glory. So it's kind of interesting when you read the story, it's like, okay, Jesus at a festival, he's doing this teaching, last day, rivers, water, what is all this? Like it, it's kind of an interesting spot. A lot of people may read this and say, what on earth is Jesus doing? This doesn't tie into anything else that was happening around him, perhaps. And the statement seems like it was coming out of nowhere. But if we understand a major highlight of the festival of shelters, we're going to understand that this statement not only makes sense, but it's also a revolutionary message for everyone who listens to it. So a little bit of history here about the Festival of Shelters. It was an eight-day festival. And once a day, for the first seven days, a priest would go from the temple to a pool in, in Jerusalem. It was called the Pool of Siloam. They would draw water from it, bring it back to the temple, and pour it out at the altar. Now, they did this because they were looking forward to Israel's coming Messiah, who would restore Israel's liberty and glory. And the water that they used to pour out at the altar, it ties back to what chapters like Ezekiel 47 and Zechariah 14 say about water flowing from Jerusalem during the time of its restoration. So several sources even say that while this water was being poured out, people would gather around, they'd kind of watch this water pouring ceremony, and they'd repeat what Isaiah 12 verse 3 says, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So like kind of this tie-in to like we're going to be saved, water is a symbol of our restoration of our salvation, right? So this went on for the first seven of the eight days at this festival. However, on the eighth day, the final day of the festival, the priests did not perform this water ceremony. And it was on this last day of the festival that Jesus calls out saying, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. And then perhaps inspired by Isaiah fifty-eight eleven, 
Jesus also says rivers of living water will flow from his or their heart. So Jesus is using a word picture here. The people at this festival would have been thinking about the significance of water since they had used it in a ceremony seven days in a row. So this image of water and restoration was a clear connection in their minds. And Jesus is telling them that the refreshment and the restoration that these people seek, it's actually available through him. He offers living water because he is the Messiah. Our gospel writer, John, he clarifies for us in these parentheses that we see here that the water that Jesus is talking about is the Holy Spirit. And this makes total sense, right? If we come to believe in Jesus, in Ephesians 1, it says that his spirit moves inside of us and lives in us. And it's a guarantee that we are forgiven for our sins and that we will receive eternal life. So this is similar, actually, to what Jesus said to the woman at the well just a few chapters back in John. He said in John 4.14, Those who drink the water I give them will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. So the message of Jesus is consistent. He's just looking for ways to connect what's going on in people's lives to the truth that he's bringing. I love what Jesus does here. And I I always call this kind of a, a tactic or this strategy a segue to salvation. You just take a normal conversation or a normal event and you tie it into spiritual things that gives you the opportunity to speak to people about salvation. And that's what Jesus did. He takes a topic, water that all the people would have been familiar with, and he uses it to point people to himself. It's like Jesus is saying, I'm the Messiah you've been waiting for. I will quench your spiritual thirst. Believe in me and you will receive from me. I will place eternal life in you. So this statement from Jesus about thirst and water makes total sense in the context of this festival of shelters. And it's completely revolutionary, right? Because the people were waiting for a Messiah king who could conquer their earthly enemies. That's the need that they had at the top of their minds. They wanted Israel's restoration to political power. But Jesus was offering them victory over something far more significant The power of sin in their life had been conquering these people. And Jesus says, I want to defeat that enemy for you. And I'm going to do it by forgiving you and offering you eternal life. So verse 40 then has some reaction here. When the crowds heard him say this, some of them declared, surely this man is a prophet we've been expecting. Others said he is the Messiah. Still others said, but he can't be. Will the Messiah come from Galilee? For the scriptures clearly state that the Messiah will be born in the royal line of David in Bethlehem, the village where King David was born. So the crowd was divided about him. Some even wanted him arrested, but no one laid a hand on him. So the people can't agree about who Jesus is. Shocker, right? I mean, that's been a common theme throughout all of John. People are always arguing, debating, and and talking like, who is this guy? I think he's this. I think he's that. Some say that he is a prophet, which means that they actually think he's the precursor to the Messiah. Like, oh, this is a good sign. I think this guy's the last prophet to come before the real Messiah shows up. Some people say, no, no, he is the Messiah. Although that that doesn't necessarily mean that they've put their trust in him to save them from their sins. They may still think, oh, I'm trusting in him to save us from Rome, who was occupying Israel at the time. Perhaps they believe that Jesus is the Messiah 
who's going to just save them from their earthly enemies. And then there's still others who doubt Jesus that, and say, there's no way he could be the Messiah because they're misinformed about him. They think that he was born in Galilee just because that's where he, he lives right now. Then they say, no, 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 the Messiah is going to come from the line of David. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. And we know that's exactly what Jesus did. He was born into David's family. He was born in Bethlehem. So last week in verse 32, you know, we we have all this confusion going on. And there's something else that that took place. Last week in verse 32, the Pharisees had sent the temple guards to arrest Jesus. But that part of, or that detail was never resolved until Today, now we can see what has come of that in verse 45. When the temple guards returned without having arrested Jesus, the leading priests and Pharisees demanded, why didn't you bring him in? We have never heard anyone speak like this. The guards responded. Isn't that great? I love that response. Like these are their, this is their boss, right? The bosses are saying, why did you guys do what we told you to do? Oh, you don't understand. Like, we've never heard anybody speak like this before. Like, this guy is special. There's something about him, right? The temple guards who went to do their job and arrest Jesus, they actually are changed by him. There's something in them that's tweaked, and their curiosity wants them to discover him more. And they, and they hear these claims that Jesus says that, Anyone can come to him and drink and that rivers of water will flow from their heart. And Jesus makes this offer that these people are now so excited to hear. He, he presents this gift and the guards and the rest of the Jewish people hear this and they say, oh man, this is different than what we've heard before because this is based on love and grace and kindness. This offer is in a sharp contrast to what they would have heard from the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders Their message is all about obedience and a demand for sacrifice from the Jewish people. Jesus' compelling message seems to have struck a chord deep in the hearts of the temple guards. And they can't shake it. They can't ignore it. They have to respond to it. Several months back... I was teaching a class at Heartview, which is the addiction recovery center here in town. And I was sharing an in-depth version of the gospel, uh, emphasizing how Jesus alone meets our needs. There's nothing else that we can do to better our situation. It's, It's total reliance on Jesus. No matter how hard we try, we have to turn to Jesus and receive from him what we can't do for ourselves. So after I made this explanation and after I'd finished saying what I wanted to say, there was this one gentleman who who spoke up. He'd been probably about 45 years old. And he said to me, Jeff, I grew up in an evangelical church for most of my life. And I've never heard about Jesus like this. I could tell that he had become really thoughtful and introspective. He was analyzing what he had just heard because it changed how he looked at faith and life with Jesus. And it's just so interesting. Like we can see these real life aha moments where the light bulb goes on for someone after we've been explaining Christ to them. Or we share this message about salvation or goodness or or the gospel, right? Or the good news. And someone says, oh man. I have never heard that before. I've never thought about it like this. I thought it was just about, you know, read your Bible and go to church and and you just do good things and you get into heaven. But so you're saying I can't do that, but Christ is doing that for me. Oh man, this is different. 
Their whole life, these temple guards would have been subjected to strict religion. They went to find Jesus to arrest him, but instead it was the words of Jesus that arrested them. His words touched their hearts and they were stunned to find in Jesus that the deepest longings of their heart could finally be satisfied. I think it's actually super important to recognize what the temple guards say when they report back to the Pharisees. These guards once again said, we have never heard anyone speak like this. These guards recognize that Jesus is different. And that's all it takes, right? The difference is what stands out to them. Jesus is speaking a new message that is captivating and true. It reaches them in a way that laws and religion and tradition never could. It's a message full of love and grace. It's invitational and generous. And through Jesus' message, he challenges his listeners to think and live in a way that changes their understanding of faith in life. Isn't that what Jesus wants to accomplish in all of us? He wants to bring about this change that we could never bring on our own. Jesus is altogether different, and he's reaching for the hearts of those who listen to what he says. So how do we know this about Jesus? Because we've never heard anyone speak like this before. You know, I've, I've, I've been exposed to other religions and other beliefs, and people like to debate with me once they find out that I'm a pastor. And they'll, you know, especially when we lived in Winnipeg and there was a lot more diversity, people would always want to talk, oh, so you believe that Jesus is God's son, right? Yeah, absolutely. And they say, well, let me tell you what I believe, right? Well, I believe that as long as we follow all these rules and do this and do that, then our gods are going to give us eternal life. But if we don't, we're going to be reincarnated and come back and try again. It's like, wow, that sounds awful. (laughs) My God loves me no matter what. It sounds like your God's love is conditional, right? And we just, we, we see the difference. We have to see these things. Here's how the the Pharisees respond to the temple guards saying, oh, we've never heard anyone talk like this. Verse 47, have you been led astray too? The Pharisees mocked. Is there a single one of us rulers or Pharisees who believes in him? This foolish crowd follows him, but they are ignorant of the law. God's curse is on them. So the Pharisees clearly threatened, uh, they resort to being in a panic and, uh, and they talk about Jesus's impact on Jewish people and how he's leading them astray and they become utterly defensive. Instead of asking the guards questions like, really? Like, what did he say? Like, what, what was his message like? How did his words impact you? Instead of asking questions to understand, they feel threatened and they speak down to the guards, insulting them by inferring that they are too dumb to have been led into anything meaningful. And they just say, you've been led astray just like everyone else. Before writing off the crowds of people that have been following Jesus, the Pharisees say something so ignorant and so prideful. They say, is there a single one of us rulers or Pharisees who believes in him? This this statement is crazy, right? In saying this, the Pharisees are telling the guards, you're too stupid to make up your own mind about Jesus. Don't think for yourself. Just do what we tell you to do. And then you're going to be fine. See, the Pharisees, they were the religious leaders of Israel. They studied the law that was given to Moses and they created even more laws to help people stay tied to religious lifestyles that were tedious and burdensome. And in their pride, Jesus was a threat. 
And they felt like their leverage or their power over the Jewish people was being threatened by this new, new man on the block, Jesus. So instead of serving the Jewish people from their high position, instead of using it as a responsibility to give, they ended up using it as, a, as an opportunity for leverage and power over the people. And they made life difficult for them. And in this instance, when they feel that this power is slipping away, their natural reaction is to feel threatened and defensive. One of the Pharisees named Nicodemus pipes up. It says, then Nicodemus, the leader who had met with Jesus earlier, spoke up. Is it legal to convict a man before he is given a hearing, he asked? This is a great way to bring about peace. Right? Nicodemus is very wise. He asks a question. He doesn't say, you guys are off your rocker. He doesn't just fire back at them. He asks a question. Back in John 3, Jesus had an extensive conversation with one of these Pharisees named Nicodemus. And the same guy here. He was open to hearing from Jesus. And it seems that Nicodemus may actually even believe that Jesus is God's son. Here he tries to reason with the rest of the Pharisees by asking this question, But the Pharisees snapped back at Nicodemus saying, and they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search the scriptures. See for yourself. No prophet ever comes from Galilee. So they're making up their whole mind about Jesus based on one fact that they can't get out of their way to disregard, right? Then the meeting broke up and everyone went home. So these Pharisees, they don't even answer the question that Nicodemus asks, probably because they know that he's right, but they don't want to admit it. And instead, they just brashly argue in support support of the stance that they've already had. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, it feels like the tension about who Jesus is, is really getting ratcheted up to a new level. Remember, Jesus knew that this was going to be a hostile place to come, this Jewish festival of, of the shelters, and it doesn't... It doesn't seem like anything's really changed. It just feels like it's actually gotten more intense. This is perhaps this Jesus' statement here at the end of this festival, that he is this water and that people can come to him and drink and, and, and living water will bubble up or will flow from within them. I think this might be, to this point, Jesus' strongest declaration that he indeed is the Messiah that people have been waiting for. It wasn't in a one-on-one conversation with someone at a well. It wasn't at night when Nicodemus came to visit him. But it was actually in a very public manner. Same message, but the context in which he said it, I think is, is pointing us that Jesus understands that things are coming to a climax, not only at this festival, but in his ministry here on earth. There's something really interesting in this passage that, that God helped me to recognize this week. And I've, I've read this passage before, but I never really caught this. So I find this really interesting. I noticed that in this passage, there are two kinds of division. And no, I'm not talking about math. Sorry, Al. But I'm talking about division between people or separation, right? So let's take a minute to explore these things. The first, the first one I want you to consider is this. Let's go back to Matthew 10 verse 34 and read something that Jesus said. Jesus said this, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. So a really interesting statement, right? A lot of people read this and say, Hmm, that doesn't really sound like this loving, cuddly Savior that I like to picture. But this is a true statement. Generally, when we think of peace, we think of everyone agreeing with each other and we're all getting along and there's no animosity or chaos at all amongst us. 
But Jesus says in this verse, Matthew 10, 34, that's not his intention. His intention. Do not suppose I came to bring peace. Instead, he has come with a sword. And a sword is a weapon that is used to cut, to divide, or to separate. We can see how Jesus divided people against one another in our passage today. He did it not through cruel intentions, but he did it through speaking the truth in love. This, in fact, it's not bad. It's this division that Jesus causes is very good. The division Jesus caused during his earthly ministry reveals that some people actually saw Jesus for who he was and they were turning to him away from the path that they had been on. They were on this dead end street and then they saw, oh, Jesus is offering me something else. I'm going to change and try this because I believe that Jesus has something that I want. You see how these people who made that choice, they were divided away from the rest of the people who maintained that Jesus could never be the Messiah. Because Jesus' heart is to save us, he does not want to leave us as we are. He came to this festival and he spoke up to change people's minds. He spoke the truth about who he was and, and what we can have in him. Some accepted what he had to say. Some rejected it. And this is how division was created. A difference in opinion about our Savior. Think about this. Jesus came to, to, to bring this division, right? To, to bring a sword. We see that that was his motives. And Jesus also says, follow me. In other words, do as he does, right? So the question that I kind of was wondering is like, Jesus, are you asking us to bring division too? In a, in a positive way, of course. I think the answer is yes. If Jesus lived a certain way, it seems like we're meant to follow him that way in our own lives too. I believe that you and I are meant to wield this sword of division just like Jesus did. In in Ephesians 6 verse 17, we're instructed to take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So as we take the message about Jesus, that's what the word of God is. And we speak it lovingly, but boldly to other people. We are giving them a chance to know Christ like we do. And this is going to cause a good division. People are going to say, I don't want to walk this road that the rest of the world is walking. I want something different. People will have a chance to trust in Jesus, to be changed from the inside out and have a glorious future for the first time in their lives. They will be divided away from the rest of the world, identified as now belonging to the family of God. So this is a very good division that Jesus causes and that he also is inviting us to carry on. So that's one kind of division. The second one is a kind of division that we want to avoid. It's not a positive division at all. The more we learn about the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders as we've gone through the the Gospel of John, the more we see that they have an attitude of exclusivity among them. They feel that they have the market cornered on truth. They believe that they are the only ones who know what's true, and anyone who disagrees with them is dumb and wrong, right? Just because of their attitude. Listen to what Galatians 5.19 says. And see if you can see in this passage, uh, Paul, who writes this, addressing this attitude of negative division. But when you follow your own wrong inclinations, your lives will produce these evil results. It lists, it lists several things, but the last one that it lists is the feeling that everyone else is wrong except those in your own little group. Doesn't that perfectly describe the Pharisees and exactly how they were treating other people? You're all wrong because you're not a Pharisee. 
Because I said so. I don't need a good reason. I'm a Pharisee. Leave me alone. Like, that's the kind of logic that they were following through with. See, these Pharisees, they had made a huge mistake, but it is consistent with their evil character. They believe that anyone who isn't a Pharisee couldn't possibly know anything about truth and religion. They are the only ones who have all the answers, and everyone else is wrong just because they are not one who belongs to their exclusive little club. Even within their own ranks, they disagree with each other and become hostile towards each other if another Pharisee doesn't have the exact same prejudice that the other Pharisees do. We can see this in how they turn so quickly on Nicodemus just because he asks a question. Galatians 5 shows us that they think this way because they are following their own wrong inclinations or desires. When we disregard people because they don't agree with us and That is what a sinful kind of division looks like. I reject you. You're not a part of me because you don't agree with me. That's a scary place to be. If we choose to disapprove of someone, end relationship with them, or think less of someone just because they have a different view on things than we do, that is is the evil result of us following our own sinful inclinations or desires. As you and I go through life, there will be people that disagree with us. I I personally haven't experienced it yet, but I'm sure you guys have. Okay, the fact that you're laughing means that you disagree that I... No, just kidding. From our church to another church, there's going to be differences, right? There's going to be things that we disagree on. It's like, ah, I don't read that scripture that way. Your theology is just slightly different than mine, right? And if we use that as a point to say, well, I guess we can never do anything together. Our fellowship ends today. That's an evil thing, right? That's not what God has desired for his churches. Even from one person to another within the walls of our church, man, we're going to think and respond to Jesus differently. We all come from different families and backgrounds and cultures and traditions. We're going to have things that we just have grown up and understood a certain way. And the next person's going to understand things differently. That's, it's a good for us to understand that it's okay that there's differences. When these moments come up, though, when we see these differences amongst us, we need to resist the urge to be right, but rather seek out what's actually right. If it happens to be you or the other person is really inconsequential. The fact that we're living according to Christ's truth is the only thing that matters. During my time here at CFC as, as pastor, um, sometimes people will come to me after a message and, and disagree with me about something. It's kind of scary, isn't it? No, I'm just kidding. It's, it's actually wonderful. I love it. My, my human side, the, the part of my flesh that is maybe a little bit prideful at times, it says, well, hang on a second. I've spent a whole week studying this thing. And actually, I've studied this for years because I've spoken on this many times. And you hear one message and now you think you know better than me. That's, if I'm honest, in my flesh, that's the temptation to say things like that. But that would be awful, right? So my human side wants to be right all the time. But I know that that's just not going to happen. None of us are right all the time. So when someone comes to me and says that they see a point I made from another perspective, I don't always do it perfectly, but I try my best to listen to what this person says. And then after the conversation, you know what's great? I actually go back and I study my Bible. It's like, Lord, if I'm wrong, I want to be corrected because I don't want to live in error. Thank you that you would show me someone who has a difference of opinion because iron sharpens iron. And when we talk to each other about theology and truth, it actually drives us closer to you. And that's a good thing. 
And then when we've dug in together or separately and we come back together, then the opportunity for us to be humble is, is right there. It's not like, see, I told you so. You're wrong. I can't believe you ever thought that. Like, no, we wouldn't say that, but rather, man, I just felt so convicted. I, I, I didn't realize that this passage had this to say about the topic that we were discussing earlier. Thanks for bringing that to my attention. This is so great. Wouldn't that be wonderful if we all responded like that, right? It doesn't matter if you're right or if I'm right. The fact is, we have to pursue together what is right according to God. My encouragement to you this week, based on what we've read today, is to thank God that you have been divided away from the world. Think about the message that Jesus was conveying that very day at the Festival of Shelters. That message was about 2,000 years ago. And here we are together in a church where we are proclaiming the same message. Some people are continuing to hear it. The fact that you're here and that you've believed in Jesus means that the message that he shared is something that someone believed back then and they held on to it. They divided themselves away from the culture and they said, yeah, I'm going to follow what Christ says. And generation after generation after generation continued to do that until you were blessed to hear that message. It's actually a miraculous thing that God has held up his message for all these generations so that we could hear it. And I think that's worth thanking God for. Salvation is not something that we can take lightly. My second encouragement to you would be this. Pray that in love, you would use the good news as a sword. That you would wield that sword with love and boldness into the lives of others, telling them about who Jesus is so that they too would have a chance to be divided away from, from a wicked destination and instead receive salvation and turn to Christ fully. There's one other thing I want to do here, and then we'll have a closing song in a, in a minute. So Karen, if you want to come up and just get set, I think that would be good. You know, we, we, to, we talked about the good division, and that's something we absolutely want to focus on. We want to strive for that for sure. But at the same time, we acknowledge that in the Pharisees, there was this negative division. And it came from this, this prideful attitude, this exclusivity, right? And none of us are immune from falling into that same trap. So I think sometimes in these moments when we're learning these hard lessons, it's one thing for us to say, oh, okay, thanks, God, I'll, I'll keep that in mind. I think it's actually even better if we stop and say, Lord, I really need you to speak to me about this right now because I don't want to think that I'm all okay when really there's something that you want to address in me. So if you, uh, Karen, just want to play a little in the background, that would be perfect. And what we're going to do is we're just going to spend a moment here asking Jesus a question in prayer. This is just for you. It's not for anyone else. You can just do this in the quietness of your heart. So why don't you just bow your heads and close your eyes. And I'm going to ask a question. And then we're just going to listen together and we'll see where the Lord wants to lead us. Jesus, we understand that there is unhealthy division. And we don't want to be a part of that. So Lord, we, want to, we just want to hold our lives out before you right now. We, we desire for your Holy Spirit to speak honestly to us. Conviction isn't bad or scary. It's actually what we really need. So Jesus... The question is this, is there a part of our lives where we are causing unhealthy or sinful division simply because we want to be right? Would you reveal that part of our lives to us right now, Father?
if Jesus has pointed something out to you and you, and you sense just a, a circumstance in your life or a certain topic that he's pointed out to you that maybe is a source of unhealthy division, why not just confess that to God? Why not just give it to him right now? Just say, Jesus, I'm sorry. I don't want to live like that. Thank you for pointing that out to me. I apologize that I've been uh, a source of division where I'm actually supposed to, to be dividing people for a much different reason so that we take them out of this world and point them towards your kingdom. I'm sorry that my arrogance or my insecurity got the best of me and that I acted out of the flesh instead of the spirit. I pray that you would help me to make a correction. If it's necessary, Lord, I'm even willing to apologize to someone or some people who I've perhaps sinned against unknowingly. I pray, Jesus, that you would forgive me, that you would restore me, that you would help me to see these things quickly so I don't enter into them again, but instead I would choose to yield to you, choosing a, a path of humility and, and, and submission to your will for my life. Thank you, Jesus, for your forgiveness. Thank you that you don't hold these things against me. Thank you that you've made it possible for me to ask for forgiveness and, and receive it quickly so that our relationship can stay strong and be restored. Lord Jesus, please bless this church and help us to be aware of what it is that you want to talk to us about so that we're always following your will and pushing away the old self that is trying to gain control again. Amen.